Welcome to the Conic Blueprint, where we talk about topics in the recruiting and staffing industry with the end goal to help improve people's lives. This podcast is brought to you by Conic, a technical recruiting company focusing on architecture, engineering, and manufacturing positions in the Midwest. Find out more at ConicNetwork.com. Brad, these are a lot of questions I've been wanting to ask you. <laughs> Get to it. <laughs> so we've got we've got a really strong legacy in our company, and we'll talk about how the two came together to create a new entity. But let's start with George Connick Associates and George Connick. Tell everybody who George was, and then why he started George Connick Associates. This is not goal, a small question. Is this, this is the goal of this podcast to make me cry? Because that's a great way to, to get I started. I know, I know. In the so world's longest podcast ever. Yeah, I, <laughs> I absolutely love talking about my father. And, and the funny thing is he would, he would have loved me talking about him as well. So yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's something where I'm obviously very proud to, to carry on the legacy of, of George Connick Associates and, and the Connick name and, and the company that comes along with it. And, you know, I think that for, for George, you know, the thing that I appreciated so much, you know, not only just as a father, but just as a, as a human being is, you know, despite all of his success, he had, he won two national championships at Denver University playing hockey. He went on and played multiple years of professional hockey, including the NHL with the, the Pittsburgh Penguins. He was a two-time All-American at Denver, went on, got an electrical engineering degree, started George Connick Associates, was a successful businessman. And he never once in that entire time, no matter what the circumstances were, people walking up asking for him to sign autographs and sign hockey cards or whatever it may be, he never once considered himself to be any better than, than anyone else. And I think, and, and Tom talks to this a lot, uh, and he's witnessed, witnessed it, and that is that, you know, he treats and, and everyone the same. If you're at a restaurant and the busboy comes over to, to clean up your dirty dishes, he's going to talk and interact with that person just like he would if he knew the owner of the restaurant and they came over to talk. And he carried that through his, his coaching years, uh, he coached Bantams through the 70s. And then uh, once I was skating, he picked up and started coaching myself. And I witnessed that in the hockey scenario too, where no matter where you were on the team, if you were the leading scorer or if you were the last kid picked on the team, the way that he approached you, the way that he cared about you and tried to push you to reach your potential, whatever that potential may be, whether it was here or here, he always approached people with the same amount of respect and dignity. And he carried that into his business. And I, I believe it's a huge secret to his success. So that's kind of a quick snapshot into, into George. Okay. Yeah, yeah we can that's go awesome. on and on, but yeah, that definitely encapsulates uh, who George was, was for sure. Always treating people with, with dignity and respect and as a human, just an equal to him, no matter, no matter what. Yeah. It's was, it was pretty, pretty amazing to, to be, um, to be part of that and witness that. Oh, I so wish I could have met him. Yeah. Yeah, me too. And Brad, I was thinking about this. You grew up always knowing of him as a businessman. I mean, obviously hockey, but his job, his profession was a business owner your entire life. What kind of an influence was that on you? And was there ever, because you joined the company, obviously, and then you eventually buy it. But did you ever want to do anything different and... There's a lot of questions there. Yeah, ab no, absolutely. I'll try to, to tick them off one by one here. 
As far as the first part of that, that the question, what was interesting is that you know he started the company in 1974. I was born in 72. So li- I mean, virtually, literally, my entire life, and certainly the the, the parts of my life that I can remember and growing up, he was always a business owner. So I saw him get up, get dressed, leave, come home. I thought, you know, he had the same kind of job like everyone else. I mean, I, I, of course, heard him talk about the fact that, oh, my company and George Connick Associates. and But as I was younger, I didn't recognize the difference of maybe him being a business owner and self-employed, per se, versus him having a eight to five job at, at Honeywell, where he actually started. So it wasn't until actually later, I would say like around high school time period, Whereas I started to reflect back and obviously got a better understanding of what a small business owner does and what it's all about and started to get a real understanding of the years and, and what he had put into it, that I could look back and sort of reflect and then see some of the differences. The main thing being that he didn't have business hours. He would be making calls at home at six, seven, eight o'clock at night. I still remember him sitting in his lounger chair. He'd have a stack of candidate files. And he'd be calling, Bob, how's it going? You know, how's Jane? He'd know people's wives. He'd know their numbers by heart. And he would sit and make calls. But he was always present for dinner. He never missed a hockey practice. When he wanted to golf, he took time off and golf. We did, a, you know, a fair amount of, of vacationing. And he was always able to get the time off, of course, you know, on the phone at the airport and, you know, always working a little bit. But I would say that that was the biggest thing that I picked up on that I started to think about why I would want to strive to be a business owner is realizing how much flexibility he had. And he worked his tail off. I mean, he worked his butt off for 30 years. I, I would I would put anyone up against him or I wouldn't put anyone up against him as far as the amount of hours he put in. But it allowed him that flexibility to be there for our family for, like I said, never missed a dinner, never missed a hockey practice, never missed a game. We were able to you know, take time off. And then he was able to enjoy life, too, by golfing and doing some fun things. So that's what I would say is, is probably the biggest impact or impression that him being a business owner had on me. That's yeah, like awesome. his wife Isla would say he never met a payphone that he didn't love. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> he'd be out somewhere downtown or at the airport, he'd see a payphone and had a quarter in his pocket, he's gonna make a couple calls. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Met center at North Star Games, he'd be running over to the to the thing in between periods, like no joke. He had a pocket full oh. of dimes and and uh knew where the payphones were. <laughs> I love it. When did it dawn on you that this was something that you wanted to do, Brad? Uh, Interestingly enough, it sort of happened by accident. I loved the idea of being a business owner. I absolutely either was born with or had that entrepreneurial spirit instilled in me somewhere along the line. So I always envisioned myself being my own boss. But my parents you know, sacrificed a lot as far as resources and, and such to, to put me through Harvard. It cost a lot of money. And the vision was not for me to come back and get involved in the family business, actually. Uh, <laughs> and I think that, you know, I, we always joke. It's like, well, you know, I could have I could have gone to a community college, taken some business courses and, <laughs> and and gotten involved in the family business just as easily, you know. So we didn't necessarily have to spend all that money, but it was just, it was, it was a fortunate set of circumstances where the timing was such that the company was struggling. 
My father was stressed and not really sure how to adapt to the new marketplace that was evolving. And I happened to be there to start providing some ideas and suggestions. And one thing led to another. I started to get more involved with the company. And then the biggest trigger, I would say, was uh, when we needed to secure new financing. So the company was in enough trouble that we needed to go out and find a new bank that would finance our debt and help kind of get things turned around. And so I, I worked with a fractional CFO to put together a cash flow analysis, a profit and loss projections. And we took that, you know, <laughs> very rough business plan to local banks to try to see if someone would help finance the company. And one comp- uh, one bank, Ridgedale, I literally get choked up thinking about it, saved the company. Their president, Bob Arneson, heard the story, heard about my dad, heard about my uh, background. And he said, yep, we'll do it. We'll give you the line of credit. We'll finance this. He said, but one stipulation. He said, you have to work out terms for you to buy your father out. And I kind of sat there. Yeah, I kind of sat there. Really? Like, yes. And he said, your, your dad has a great story and a great legacy. But, you know, at this point, I had been involved with the company for almost two years. And okay. I had gotten it turned around and I'd gotten it profitable. And he just kind of saw that, that the new direction of the company, it needed s- sort of a new vision. Yeah. And so he, he called me out. And so it forced me to go back to my father and say, here's the deal. I can secure financing to push this company forward and into the future. But one of the stipulations is he wants us to work out a buyout. And my How dad actually- How old were you at the time? So I was 20. Well, gosh, let me think. So that was 97. So I was 25 years old. Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, I'm basically fresh out of college because it was college in 96. I played a year of minor league hockey. And then I came back March, April of 97. By June, I was involved in the company. By October, I took over as the quote unquote operations manager. And then fast forward, we started negotiations towards the end of two, uh, 1999. And the buyout was signed in June of 2000. Yep. That's crazy. I know. I never heard this story, obviously. I'm just kind of, my jaw hit the floor. Right. So we now, uh, just quickly, we work with Melissa at uh, Johnston at Highland, and she knows the story. Bob specifically picked her. She was a former basketball player in college, and he's like, you guys are going to get along great because he was going to be retiring. And to this day, I still, every time we go to lunch, I tell Melissa, you know the story, but you're going to hear it again. Bob was the only person who believed in us. Bob gave us the line of credit. He saved this company. I am will and forever be loyal to Ridgedale, which is now Highland. They were bought out. I mean, she usually gets choked up. Tom usually gets choked up. And then she laughs and jokes. And she says, you're so lucky it was 1999 because there's no way that you would have gotten that loan today. <laughs> With all the new restrictions. And, and she's like, there is no way you could have taken a company that had lost money for two years, gotten it profitable for four and secured a line of credit like that. He's, she's like, Bob just like basically wrote you a check and said, here you go. Good luck. I mean, she goes, it was a, a different world back then. So we were very lucky. There was a lot of, lot of reasons why uh, this, this company could not or would not necessarily be here. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. crazy story. At 25, yes. can you imagine a banker saying that to you? 
<laughs> at 25? No, because be, I'm thinking like at 25, the world's yours. Yeah, you're working for your dad, but you could go do anything. You could start your own company. You could do like, did you have a vision of what else you were, you could have yeah. done? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, a little bit sort of stereotypical, but for the path, it just sort of seems it, if you graduate from Harvard, a common path is either investment banking yeah. or venture capital type uh, companies. So that's where I envisioned and that's where I was starting to interview and consider opportunities as things started to unfold at, at George Connick Associates. So I think that would have been my path to get into some type of investment and, and uh, capital management and I, with the goal of eventually being my, you know, one of a, a partner in a firm. So I'm glad that didn't work out for you. <laughs> I am too, actually. <laughs> I am. I am too. I know a lot of people in that industry that are, are that deal with uh, uh, way too much stress. And as stressful as this can be at times, it's still, I love every minute of it. I love every day. So I I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it ever. A lot of changes. That's the word that I was kind of keying in on. So, and then while you guys are running, well, Tom, and we'll get to Tom's interview in a little bit, but Tom comes on board. I'm over at Prime Staff. I joined in December of 99, just had my 20th anniversary because there was a few months I took off after the twins were born, but then you guys decide to buy Prime Staff. Why? What What went into that decision? I mean, I know a little bit of the story, but I'd love for you to tell everybody that story. Well, Tom's answered because I'm crazy. What are you doing? <laughs> Why are you even having these conversations? Why would we? You know, no. I, it really comes down to the relationship that I had with uh, Kathy Carlson. You know, yeah. the, the the founder and and, and partner with with Troy, but. Kathy and I would meet once a year. There was maybe a couple times uh, where we met a couple times a year, starting about four years prior to the bio. And we would just get together and just kind of share stories, compare notes, talk about the ups, the downs. And there was so much in common between the two companies, having been founded here, specializing in engineering and architecture, the, the smaller family uh, feel to it. And so there was just a lot in common and she and I hit it off both personally and professionally. And so then as things progressed, Troy and Kathy got to a point where they were thinking about the possibility of selling. And she approached me and said, we've talked about it. And the only people that we can think of, at least as of right now, that we would want to buy the company is you guys. And at this point, she had um, met Tom. Tom had, and, and I had gone out to lunch with her and Troy. And so we'd all gotten to know each other. And we talked about our philosophy and, and how we valued our employees and how we approached business. And it just, it resonated with her and giving her, you know, credit where credit is due. And it speaks volumes to her. One of the consistent messages throughout the whole entire process was, you need to promise me you're going to take care of my employees. You're going to need to promise me you're going to take care of my employees. And so she didn't want someone that was just going to come in and got the company and take the client list or, you know, some corporate baron call it. And she saw how Tom and I approached business. And then as things escalated and they got more serious about selling, we said, let's, let's start talking terms. So I'd say the last sort of hesitation we had was, are we simply just buying a mirror image of ourselves? You know, are, are we just, what good is it if 80% of their clients are the same as ours? And at that point, we're just maybe buying some employees. And so mm-hmm. 
that was probably the, the most exciting time was when we got to, you know, we'd signed the, the non-disclosure and, and confidentiality agreements and they sent over the client list. And Tom and I were like, this is crazy. There's like only a 20% over, overlap. And we laughed because of the fact that there were companies that we were calling on that we couldn't get into that were totally telling us, oh, no, we don't use contract. And oh, no, we don't be up. And they're like top billers for... for uh... <laughs> and then I remember we met and I think you saw some of the lists and you're like, I want, I've been trying to get into that company forever and I get shut down. And I think there was one yeah. that I was like, well, we placed the manager. There's one. There's yeah. another one where I'm like, I was in that guy's wedding. So you're, I'm like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so now you know how it feels. <laughs> I still remember that. I mean, Tom and I talk about, you know, you and Colleen and just the name of like, are you kidding me? They beat us again to that contract assignment. They beat us to this position. And oh, so funny. <laughs> so, yeah, it just it, it's interesting because it was non-intentional. We were not looking to acquire a company. It was really that they approached us and we thought that there was some value there, an overused word, but synergy. And once we saw that there was only that 20% overlap, uh, the numbers started to make sense. And so we consulted with our advisors, our CPA firm and our accountant and some business advisors that we trust. And they said, this looks like a great deal. You know, it looks like a win-win for both uh, sides. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I was I was hesitant at first because Brad had mentioned it a couple times. I'm like, why would we buy a direct competitor? What's our what's our gain? You know, why not just hire an extra six people and we're the same same as them? But then, like Brad said, we I met Kathy and Troy for the first time, and I knew I knew pretty quickly that like, wow, this could be a really good fit because they led with heart, and they're both very smart people, but they led relationships first like all heart, yeah. very smart people at the same time. I'm like, wow, like if they treat their employees, like seems like they do, like yeah. that, that's, that's what got me excited, you know, before I even knew, you know, who their customers were at the time. Like this could yeah. be a really, really exciting opportunity. So yeah. That's kind of what got me. And then from then, then it was smooth, you know, and then the whole, the whole process and of course, tons of headaches back and forth and drafting documents. Mm-hmm. But the whole process of not only that, just working with them on the agreements, but then once we met the staff, it was amazing. It was, you know, they, they say, you know, culture is important when you merge. And it was, it, the culture fit was, was very, very strong. So that, that definitely made it very successful. That's um, what I was going to say too. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I, I'm no, sorry. No. I was just going to say, I remember when you guys brought the staff over from GKA to Prime Staff, it felt like this, it just felt like a different office, but the same company. It really did. So kudos to both of you and to Kathy and Troy for doing that. It just, and I think it's been seamless. And we are effectively for almost four years into this. Can you believe it's been four years? I know, right. And all that's changed, this is a completely different company with a completely different identity. Talk about that and how we've come from September 3rd or whatever the day was that you signed the agreement four years ago to today and where we're going because we've got a huge, we've almost got a new identity. We've got a new reason for... Vision. Goal, a vision, yeah. Yeah. A bigger word, yeah. Thank you. No, 100%. Chanel and I had a, a one-on-one, our operations manager and operations director, and 
I was just saying to her, and and I need to give uh, kudos to uh, Tom and, and Chanel because they pulled out of me uh, the vision that was sort of sitting there, yeah. call it suppressed for, for so many years in that, you know, I watched my father conduct business in a way where it was never about the money. It, right. In fact, it was so not about the money that he made so many bad deals. Like it would make your head spin. <laughs> I mean, like, but I mean, rates that you, there's, we were losing money on, but it's, oh, he's a great guy and he needs the help or he's, you know, it's a small company and they can't afford to pay. And I'm thinking, dad, I get it, but we can't afford to lose money on this deal. And, but he just, he loved the handshake deal or maybe I hadn't said it early, but you know, did the, the right things for the right reasons. He never, so it wasn't about the money. And, and so Tom and Chanel, Tom in um, one being uh, an inspiration just as far as a business partner and his work ethic, his dedication to this company, his appreciation of the legacy. He references George and, you know, sort of what would George do or what would George have done even more often than I do. Um, and I share that with my family all the time that there's a reason why Tom is my business partner and not just because he's extremely intelligent and sharp and great at his job, but because he appreciates that legacy as, as much or, you know, even more than I do and, and realizes how much both of us learn from and uh, benefit from, you know, the, the, the opportunity that George created for us. And so getting to, to, you know, to your point, Chanel came on a year ago and within about three or four months, she challenged me and said, Brad, what is the vision of this company? And what is it that is going to get people to want to follow you to, you know, call it the promised land? And she said, and it's not going to be about money and it's not going to be about how many placements can we get? And she said, there's something bigger there that you need to kind of dig, dig up and figure out. And so it was over about a three month span, you know, with Tom's influence, his social awareness and his understanding of who George was and why he did business and how he did business relationship first and Chanel pushing me, I was able to pull together a vision, which is based around our core purpose, which is positively impacting people's lives. And that's what George did. Helping the person who was out of work or, you know, one of my favorite stories uh, uh, that an individual told me was he said, I struggled with alcoholism, went to treatment, had gotten fired from their job because of issues that were related to alcohol, had gone to treatment, came out, he called my dad, my dad brought him into the office, sat down, he said he spent about an hour talking to me and said, all right, we're going to get you back to work. And he put the guy back to work and he said, without him, he goes, I don't know if anyone would have touched like Mm. with the history and all of that. But my father, who was also recovering alcoholic, understood the story, believed in what this individual could do, believed in second chances and put his reputation on the line to say, I'll do this for you. And he went and put him back to work. And so in reflecting on all of that, I realized that that's what he did. He positively impacted people's lives. And he didn't do it to make a buck. He just did it because he wanted to make the world a better place. And he loved people and he loved relationships. And so I built the vision around 
doing exactly that, being more aware of how we can make a positive impact on our candidates, our clients, our friends, our family. I'm talking inside, outside our organization. And even more importantly, or as importantly, is being aware of our community and how we can make a positive impact in our community. And so that's where Tom's vision of the responsibility campaign came about and essentially is going to be a vehicle in which we take the mechanism of of Connick Prime staff and we fund our responsibility campaign to make sure, and basically we've got five amazing charitable partners. Tom, you're going to have to make sure I don't miss one here, but we've got Beyond the Yellow Ribbon, helping uh, veterans and military families. We've got Hope for Youth, which is getting uh, teen uh, homeless kids off the streets and uh, helping them transition into more permanent uh, jobs and housing. We've got a Vivo, which is uh, assisting with uh, addicts and homeless people and getting their lives back on track through treatment, rehab, and also permanent housing. We've got a Cookie Cart, which is helping the underprivileged and giving them basically uh, career counseling opportunities and teaching them sort of the mechanisms of business and um, giving them, uh, helping to open the door to opportunities that can lift them out of, you know, their, their, many a times their, their poverty type state um, they're in. And then Washburn Center for Children, which is dealing with um, mental health for kids. So I got them all, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> Um, But I mean, think think about that. You think of all of the mental health issues that have got on. And in the midst of this pandemic, all the people who are struggling, well, uh, you have the adults. Think if for for all these these people, if this could have been addressed as a child, identified and treated and got the resources in place. It just these organizations are doing amazing things and it, it chokes me up. And I that's what this company is about. It's about doing great things, connecting great candidates with great clients, but then taking the resources that are generated from that and compounding them by supporting these types of organizations. It's, I'm, I'm so excited. It has given me a whole new purpose in driving this company forward. It really has. It's been really amazing to watch you and the energy and I don't want to say renewed enthusiasm, but just a new enthusiasm. A hundred percent. Absolutely. 